Welcome to the Clifftown Podcast with me, MG Bolter. I started this podcast back in early December 2020. At the time, I was planning on five short episodes to promote my album, Clifftown, which was due out in April 2021. However, if you've been following my series, you'll know that one inquiry led to another, and I ended up falling down many rabbit holes. The world, or South End, is endless, it seems. One way I dealt with some of these was by creating short bonus episodes. If you are on the MG Bolter mailing list, you will have had access to these. But those who haven't, I've dedicated this ninth episode to some of the highlights. So, join me in this trot through the marginalia of the Clifftown podcast. Welcome to Clifftown. I think you can tell that I am terrified every time I first port of call is the Chapman Lighthouse, a long-lost Canvey Island lighthouse which was brought up by the RNLI lifeboatman Ian Keenan in episode 3. I'd never heard of the Chapman Lighthouse until two days before I was due to interview Ian Keenan, a crew member of the Royal National Lifeboat Institution at the South End branch. Ian enthusiastically sent me source material for a whole load of different topics that we might discuss. One which caught my eye was the Chapman's Lighthouse. The best way to describe it is like a water tower resting on a steel skirt of girders, its light window like a beady cyclops looking out to sea. It reminded me of one of those tripods in H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. I started digging further into the history of the lighthouse, but before I continue with what I found, here is what Ian had to say about his interest in it. Well, so yeah, so so one of the things that we do within our training is that we have to learn uh, all the buoys on all the voyage that there's and there's different shaped buoys, different colours, things like that, and they're obviously marker points for us as well. Um, So so in fact, we we use a lot of marker points, Shubri Boom. Mulberry Harbour or Phoenix Unit, Crowstone, we, we use all these as, as marker points um, to navigate a lot of the times. Uh, and, and the buoys that we have out in the channel as well, and we have lots, there's lots of them out there. And the one that sticks out when I was learning all that was the Chapman Bell, which is just off Canvey Point, uh, because it's the only one with a bell in it. And you go past it, on the, you hear it, and it's great at night because you can hear it at night. Me being a little bit nerdy as I was, I started to uh, just just read up on things like that, and it didn't take me long to find out that originally it was a lighthouse there. So it was a lighthouse, which I understood was manned by two people, uh, and it was situated between Canby Point and Holhaven Creek uh, for the purposes of warding people off the Chapman Sands and the Lee Middle Sands, which I think if you if you're local you'd look at and say Hadley Road, right? Yeah, the sands out there. Um, so it was and it's it was this it, it, it the picture of it is just amazing and you can't look at it and just think wow there's two people that lived on this because it's just on it's in the water it's on stilts uh and it looks just like a, a big oversized boy uh, with a light with a light on top 
Um, and the thing that I kind of thought of was they're there, they're there to stop ships hitting the sandbank. There's nothing to stop the ship hitting them. You know, <laughs> it's like, and I just could just have this thought, just imagine living on that and manning that for the period of time. So there were two people, two living, people on living on it. Yeah. And, um, and when you start reading reading about it, so they had books and they had things, you know, and, and, and they, uh, when you read the story about the, the Czech Master, it was there for a hundred years. So it was there for a hundred years, um, and it was only, I think, in 1957, I think it was, that um, they found that the, the legs were eroding and it, it, they weren't going to replace it, and so that they, they took it away, and in its place, they put a bellboy, which is what we now know as the Chapman Bell, which is what first sparked my interest. Um, so yeah, there's a bellboy there now. But I just, I, and people on Canvey, if you live on Canvey and, and it's rough, you'll hear that bell and, and you grow up with that, the sound of that bell um, clanging. And I know local musicians who've, who've written songs about Canvey have mentioned a bell, not necessarily knowing it's the Chapman Bell and the history behind it, but you, you grow up on Canvey, you hear that, you hear that bell noise. The Chapman Lighthouse was originally built in 1849 as a screw-pile lighthouse, replacing a temporary lightship which had been positioned there from 1847. Seafarers had been requesting some beacon there to guard against the dangerous Chapman Sands, which were first mentioned in records of 1402, when it was known as Chapman Sond most likely after a late 14th century farm in Lee, known as Chapman's Land. The Screwpile Lighthouse was designed by James Walker, a successful Scottish engineer who was involved in the design of the original Vauxhall Bridge, the East India Docks, and was a consulting engineer on Big Ben. The lighthouse looked completely different to your traditional lighthouse. Seven iron piles were literally screwed into the mud to provide a platform for the light and accommodation for two men who would spend their time alone out there in the estuary. They had but a single rowboat suspended on the side to get back to shore, although in low tide it was possible to wade half a mile onto Canvey Island. At 74 feet tall, Chapman's lighthouse was painted red even during the World Wars, and it makes an appearance in the brooding opening pages of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, first published in 1902. It's Fogbell giving three strokes in quick succession every 15 seconds in foggy conditions. A British Pathé film from 1951 shows the centenary celebrations of the lighthouse, with boats flocking around the structure. Sadly, not long after, the piles were found to be badly corroded, and it was decommissioned in 1957 and removed by December 1958, after 106 years' service. Canvey residents would have to make do with the bellboy replacement, which Ian now passes during his duties as a lifeboatman. I'll leave you with this chilling story, true or not, from a Mr A. Pierce, published on canveyisland.org, a community-run archive. And I'll play you out towards the end with a sound recording from the East Tilbury bellboy a few miles down the coast.
My bedroom overlooked the lighthouse, down at Marine Parade, so I was more than familiar with it and the mournful sound of its bell when the fog rolled up the river. I used to look at it every day in the 40s, and it brings back a haunting memory of a bitterly cold day in 1947. I was 13 then and was allowed to go out on the mud on my own to set a deadline for fish. It doesn't sound dangerous until you see how the incoming tide can cut round you and cut you off from the shore. Some school friends of mine died out there through being caught on the other side of the ray. The one no-no was to go out there if fog was around. I was threatened with a heavy hand if I did. This freezing cold day I was up on the wall in my wellies with my tin of bait and a sack waiting for the tide to drop. A council worker was there mending holes in the wall and we had a chat as I waited. He thought the fog was coming up and advised me not to go out there. With all the confidence and certitude of ignorance I said I'd be okay and walked out over the mud, through the ray and on the line. I had 17 place and 10 pound of cod. The cod was half my weight. I was rich. It took me 20 minutes to unhook them from the line with freezing fingers and get the place in the bag. I kept the cod out to give me balance on the other arm. I wasn't going to bait up again. I was too excited. Then I stood up and turned to go. Nothing. I couldn't see a thing. The fog had come round me. Dad would kill me. The lighthouse was gonging away, but it should have been to the right of me. The trouble was, I was so close to the lighthouse that I felt I was inside the sound. I couldn't get a direction from it. So I guessed. Went about 50 paces and I paddled into water. I gingerly edged forward and pushed one foot out to touch bottom and the water came over my wellies. This didn't seem right. The tide was going out and I should have water only halfway up if I were in the ray. It was one of those moments in life when you die or you live. I had presence of mind to back out and retrace my steps to the fishing line. I'd made such a mess around it though, I couldn't find the approach I'd made to it. So I guessed again, about 100 paces. I reached water, paddled slowly in. The bag was soaked and was a dead weight now. I wouldn't let go. I was going to show this catch off to the whole world. But the water came up over my willies again. My feet were squelching and sucking away in there. I was feeling a bit tired. Some primitive survival instinct welled up in me. Help! Help! The councilman heard me, and I could hear him squelching out over the mud and shouting, Over here! Over here! But I couldn't be sure which way he was calling from. Whether it was an act of faith or stupidity on my part, I don't know, but I kept wading through the water, not caring about the freezing water coming up over my legs. Then the water got shallower, and I met the councilman as he got to the water's edge. The other way was a cold, miserable, lonely death if I tried to walk through the shipping lane to Kent. You silly bugger, I told you, didn't I? He took my bag and led me back to the wall. Don't tell my dad, will you? I emptied my boots. I was more frightened of a belting than realising I'd nearly died. That was 53 years ago, and I cringe with shame when I think of it. I was so thoughtless. If that councilman is still alive, I'd just like to say thank you for coming out and to get me and for not telling my dad.
Episode 5 looked at some of the famous visitors to Southend, who had somehow placed this small part of the world within a wider context. My guests for this episode made the investigations easy with their enthusiasm and knowledge. One name that cropped up was Ian Sampson, a strong man with a colourful backstory fit for Hollywood. I couldn't help but look further into this interesting man alongside Buffalo Bill's 1903 visit to Southend, which didn't quite make the final cut of the main episode. When talking to Stuart, he casually dropped in the name of a local strongman called Iron Sampson. I was instantly intrigued, and once we'd finished talking about Harry Houdini, here's what he said about this strongman. You have uh, the strongman's Alexander Zass, or also known as the Iron Sampson. He's actually buried in Hockley, uh, but basically his career was he came from Vilm or Vilnius in Poland and was part of a cavalry uh, regiment in the Great War. Long story short, he uh, his horse got injured, shot out from under him by a sniper. So mm. it was when he picked the horse up and carried it back to his line that people started to go, maybe this guy has got some sort of strength in him. Uh, he got captured uh, again, he got injured. He broke out of the cell by pulling his chain apart, turning it into, bending it with his hands into a grappling hook and using that to scale the wall before jumping into the moat headfirst sight unseen and running 20 miles. Apparently he slept uh, quite well after that. Uh, I, would have, I would have slept during that. I don't think I could, have, uh, could do those feats, but he, was, uh, he, he, uh, he married uh, a girl from Essex. They settled uh, in the Rayleigh, South End, Eastwood area. And he would often perform. There's some wonderful uh, pate news of him in his prime. Uh, he ended up having a, I think he was constantly doing uh, bending iron bars, breaking chains with his strength. He was a classic uh, strongman of the 1920s, 1930s era. Uh, he wasn't able to return home because of obviously the revolution and then further developments during World War II. So he became very much a, an anglicised uh, performer, hence him being buried in Rochford. But he was a fascinating man to, to behold. My interest was piqued, and I went to work trying to find all I could about Alexander Sass, the amazing Samson, as his autobiography, published in 1926, proclaimed. His story, told in his own efficient and humble way, went from his birth in Vilnius, in modern day Lithuania to his arrival in London in 1924 and his success as a touring entertainment act, a lot like Houdini and Lauren Hardy covered in the main episode. Starting off in the circus, he was eventually called up to the 12th Turkestan Rifle Regiment and posted to Persia as part of the Russian Imperial Army before being posted to a cavalry regiment to fight in Austria during World War I. He was captured and escaped four times, his autobiography praising the leniency of his Hungarian captors. Reading the accounts of digging tunnels and roaming the Carpathian Mountains avoiding recapture is frankly jaw-dropping. On his final recapture, he was punished by being placed in solitary confinement. Unshackled only twice a day, he practised a form of solitary strength and muscle building called isometrics. 
He picked at the masonry around the bars in his cell window, before eventually breaking both his chains and bending the bars to escape. Free for the final time, he headed to Budapest and joined the circus, making his way eventually to Paris, where he was spotted by the empresario Oswald Stoll and brought to England. He arrived at Victoria Station in London one Saturday in early 1924, knowing only one word of English, Colosseum, which was the name of the venue in Hackney he was due to perform. Helped by a train official, he was bundled into a cab, which was told to make haste to the Colosseum, despite the cabbie being initially sceptical of being offered millions of German marks for the fee by a confused and well-meaning strongman. Thus ensued a successful entertainment career, where he lifted horses and lions, bent iron bars with his teeth, and had cars drive over him. A British Pathé film from 1934 shows him bending iron bars over his head and twisting them into knots. Today, Alexander, or Iron Samson, is well regarded in his home state, with a statue of him standing proud in Orenburg in Russia. But it was in Hockley, a town just a few miles north of Southend, where he settled in the 1950s, allegedly living in a bungalow in Plum Row Avenue with other retired circus performers. One, a crippled elderly lady called Betty, who was fired from the cannon and swung on the high trapeze, and her husband, known as either Bert or Sid, who was a retired clown. The Iron Samson is buried in St Peter and St Paul's Church in Hockley, having died in 1962. He requested a dawn burial, a circus performer custom, which represented the inevitable dawn rollout to the next destination. It seems a muted end for someone who had such an adventurous life, but I think my generation can forget that the suburbia of Southend and its environs offered that post-war generation a feeling of safety and settlement. No more bombed-out city terraces, no more marches or trenches or beach landings and bombs, just tree-lined avenues, picket fences and your own back garden. It's easy to lose sight of this when you experience it now. When researching for the main episode, my initial plan was to cut it into thirds, dealing with Laurel and Hardy, Neil Young and Buffalo Bill. However, best laid plans and all that. The Houdini story was just too rich not to include, so Buffalo Bill was cut. Now, Buffalo Bill, or William Cody, is arguably the first living legend of the mass media age. Born in Iowa in 1846, Cody had the ultimate life of adventure. In his youth, he worked on the wagon trains, as well as being a trapper. And he was also a messenger on the Pony Express, delivering letters from New York to San Francisco in 10 days. And that was before the arrival of trains, of course. He fought in the American Civil War, was a hotelier and a scout for General Custer's army. His prodigious culling of buffalo to feed the army of railway workers earned him the moniker Buffalo Bill. Soon after, he rejoined the army and during a skirmish killed the Cheyenne chieftain Tallball, an event which was to be enshrined in his future Wild West show. If that wasn't enough, 
Bill was also part of the Little Bighorn campaign in 1876 and was given further hero status in Washington when he, as the press pitched it, took the first scalp for Custer when he killed and scalped the Cheyenne warrior Yellowhair during the Battle of Warbonnet Creek in Nebraska. Custer himself had perished shortly before at the Battle of Little Bighorn. Through chance and natural showmanship, Cody soon embarked on a showbiz career, touring his Wild West show across the world from the 1880s into the early 20th century. This stuff of legend and Hollywood westerns is not synonymous with Southend-on-Sea. But in 1903, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show, by then staffed by 800 crew and performers, arrived in Southend on three special trains which came into Southend Victoria Station in the early hours of Thursday the 3rd of September. According to David Dumford's book, Buffalo Bill's Wild West, there was already a crowd waiting at the station by 4am to see horses, the Lakota chieftain Irontail and the original Deadwood stagecoach disembark and make its way to Marine Park. The sheer size and logistics of transporting the show is akin to a major rock band going on a world tour today. You can't imagine how alien the spectacle of this show arriving would have been. I read reports that some of the Native American performers wandered down the high street, killing time before the show. The show itself pitched up in Marine Park, which doesn't exist anymore, but was, in fact, a park that sat behind a grand entrance, which locals will now know as the Curzel. Circus tents were pitched up around an arena so that punters could enjoy a fairground atmosphere before the main two-hour show began. The show saw reenactments of Native American attacks on wagon trains, a demonstration of the Pony Express, and Buffalo Bill himself shooting glass balls while galloping around on horseback. Buffalo Bill was 57 when he came to Southend, and I couldn't really find anything about his personal time here. I imagine he stayed away from things and simply performed when needed. The journeys and shows must have taken their toll on him. This story fascinated me and reinforced that feeling I was trying to get at in the main episode, that no matter how provincial and forgotten Southend felt to me, it had been connected to the wider stream of life, a thought I've tried to convey in my album. I think there's so much more to explore in this story. There has to be more accounts, photos even. But unlike the Laurel and Hardy visit, the people who lived in Southend at the time we simply cannot reach through the current generations. Maybe there's a photo of William Cody, a legend of the time when modern America was being formed, standing in his long-tasseled coat outside Southend Curzel. The hardest episode I found to make was episode two, the one about music. Some of the guests had been hard to track down, and the research I needed to undertake on Mike Taylor was mind-boggling. However, it remains one of my favourite episodes, in part due to the fascinating chat I had with biographer, novelist and all-round polymath Zoe Howe. Here are some of the highlights from the bonus episode, where we talked more about pub rock and Canvey Island. 
fairly put Zoe on the spot when I interviewed her because I asked her to name her top three pub rock acts um, and I think she really struggled with that at such short notice. So I thought I'd start this bonus episode by including some of the other great bands and artists she mentioned. We could be joint first with the fielders, but you know, they all, yeah. And then I've got to say, wow, God, three, three is not enough. Um, I'm not very good at maths, so I'm going to just throw numbers out the window. Eddie and the Hot Rods, very important pub rock band from, from the local area. Um, yeah, very much, uh, you can see the link from them to punk very easily. And Lou Lewis, I must mention Lou Lewis, who, uh, an Eddie and the Hot Rods connection, he was in the Hot Rods for a while. Um, Lee Brillo kind of got him that gig. You know, it's all very uh, interwoven. Um, Lulu is still around now, honking into his harmonica, probably as we speak. Um, <laughs> but he's he's a real legend, a, a kind of a, a charming rogue of the South End Canvey, uh, Canvey uh, Illuminati. And um, he made a great album called Save the Whale, um, which I, I would definitely recommend as well. So, um, but it's it's a bit of an extended family as well. You know, the fronds of the South End pub rock scene, they all kind of like interweave with each other and then they kind of reach further out and, and they, they continue to reach. As you say, you, you, you and the Lucky Strikes, you know, you're still very aware of that kind of, um, of those guys. And uh, the feel goods especially, I mean, it makes me think of... Um, the artist Scott King, who famously, uh, sort of semi-jokingly, but not entirely, uh, proposed uh, that there should be a 300-foot gold-plated statue of Lee Brillo standing by the Kurzel, <laughs> which I, is fabulous. And he made prints of the kind of prototype, the sort of mock-up. I have, you know, and they're beautiful. I have one on my wall, and it's almost like a kind of house guardian, you know, this gargantuan Lee Brillo standing over the Kurzel, looking quite, you know, don't mess. Um, but also I think the fact that he came up with that as an idea gives you an idea of the sort of this sort of unspoken psychology of how people like Lee are still seen around here, these giants, um, you know, of of rock and roll, but also something else as well, something that's very South End, something that's very Essex, which I think is a kind of um yeah, as you say, the fact that they didn't go away, the fact that they stuck around meant a lot. Um, and there was they, they they always had a great affection for where they were from, always remembered their roots and and how important those people were, the people who supported them coming up. They were very, very conscious of that. During our chat, we talked about Julian Temple's fantastic documentary about Dr. Feelgood, Oil City Confidential. It is a really affecting and beautiful film. I highly recommend it. I mentioned to Zoe that my mum had watched the documentary with me once and a smile had come across her face when Lee Brillo's wife appeared on screen because my mum had worked with her at Southend Hospital. And it struck me then that music was not just only for a community but of a community as well. Julian Temple really got it so right with the film Oil City Confidential uh, because people have tried to make films about the fielders before they've made films about South End Rock but he just got it so right and I think he he got this magic I mean Julian's got his own magic very much so but he he got that kind of magic synergy between people and place and music and and environment and it's as much about canvey as it is about the feel goods that was how i felt the first time i saw it i thought well i've, I've not just come away learning about a band here or a scene even it, it this this is 
kind of opening a kind of portal to Canby as this sort of really quite unusual, interesting place. And so I think you're right that that you can't really tell the feel-good story without telling the Canby story or the Essex story. And I think it's such an interesting um, combination um, and it and it makes the story richer and it makes the songs richer because those songs you know are about people from here they're about you know all through the city you know that you hear about the tower the blazing tower at Corriton oil refinery is in that song you know these things that references that local people will get and understand that's very precious and it's almost like a kind of autobiography of a place and I suppose that's something that you do a lot with your own songs and with your you know with, with the album Clifftown it's you're drawing on moments in the sort of spirit of a place and things that people who are from that place will will recognize straight away and as a feeling if not something literal we got to reminiscing about our own time starting out in music in the local scene um, myself in the band The Lucky Strikes and many other bands and Zoe uh, as a drummer in a local band and we started talking about how audiences in Southend are good training grounds for musicians and in this next part Zoe says that everybody in Southend is a rock star which I think is so true in, in the best of senses and I think I think it's because of that and because there's such a rock and roll there's a there's a musical heritage here that is just it's it's not glamorized it's taken as red that that's <laughs> that's in your DNA and so you know audiences know what they're talking about they know what they're looking for they know what's good and that's all that matters and that was something that really struck me when I was playing in bands um you know as a as a drummer um I used to come up against all sorts of weird attitudes when I was playing in London and in South End, I didn't get that at all. It was like, is it good? Yeah, okay, and we can dance to it, fine. There were, I never got anything, you know, from any attitude from like, you know, sort of an old geezer at the bar in the rail or anything. They were just all really supportive. If they, if if you were doing a good job, that was all that mattered, and that was really, it struck me because I saw, I knew the other side of that, what was possible. So I just thought, wow, that's that's cool, you know, that this is this is cool. People, and I always think, you know, in South End, you're either people are either rock stars or they or they know a rock star you know everyone's a rock star in south end and i mean that in every sense <laughs> and, and 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 wholly a compliment but i think that is um just something that's part of the the, the the it's in the blood here it's in the mud in the thames mud i'll leave you with a short chat we had about canvey island I confessed to Zoe that I had had a semi-religious experience on Canvey. One hot summer's day, many years ago, I was driving around on the island, the windows down, Bob Dylan's classic 1980s album saved, blaring out of my car stereo. And there was something about the way the wind moved the reeds in the marshes and the way the place looked. It was just otherworldly. And um, it was really good to hear Zoe confirm my, uh, my experiences. It's like a religious, semi-religious experience. Wow. Every time I go to Canby, I feel I'm going on holiday. I feel like I'm going to some realm that isn't quite of, of this place. I think that's because you are. <laughs> There's nowhere like Canby. It's, it is another, you're, you've hit the nail on the head. It, when you said I had a transcendental experience on Canby, I thought, of course you did. <laughs> that's what happens. It's, it's another realm there's something else there's something other about that 
place it's fascinating and there's just such great history and I think that was some one of the things that really turned um Leon you know from an early age he's actually a Londoner he's the only member of the band who wasn't from Canby he came from uh, from Ealing that's where his family were, were living at the time and he had a grandmother on Canby and he just loved it so much they ended up living there but um he was just totally into the kind of the wildlife and the history and the weirdness and the sort of funny things that would happen there that just didn't seem to happen anywhere else and I feel that too you know there's always something that happens on Canby that is just strange or unusual or you know I think it was like a human skull was washed up on uh, Canby Point the other day you know of course it was you know it's <laughs> What else have you got? The Canby Island monster. I I love that. It's something very. There's something mythical about the place. <laughs> okay, I'm going to leave you with one more diversion. Episode seven saw me visit Southend Museum and meet with curator Kira Phipps to talk about the history of Southend in four objects. The bonus episode looked at Southend's oldest shoe and the history of the Echo Radio Factory. One of the greatest revelations for me was the history of Eric Cole and the Echo Radio Factory. I could have done a whole episode on this alone, I felt. Maybe I will, but for the time being, here's Kira telling me a little more about its fascinating history. Really, it was that development of Bakelite that that really sort of revolutionised it, I suppose, because before then, as you say, if you... You look at old sort of period dramas and stuff. Everyone had big wooden cabinets for radios, yeah. and then the introduction of plastic, yeah. some sort of plastic. I assume that's what Bakelite yes, is. Yes, yeah, and it was really known as thick, a it? yeah. It, it was known as a wonder material because it was so kind of exactly that. It was so flexible, and also it kind of really um, it really increased um, mass production. So you could mass produce radios mm. on a much larger scale than you ever would be able to. Um, with kind of wooden cases which would be a lot more time intensive so they had these huge bakelite presses basically that could create the moulds that were the case yeah so and what um and how many of those have you got in the collection oh god we have hundreds of radios we have hundreds and hundreds of radios we also have a lot of um so we've got a really good kind of contextual collection as well so the other kind of um radios of the time so yeah um marconi's and um, his master's voice and things like that. So we've got some really incredible examples. We also have um, some wonderful televisions because they made televisions. We've got a huge, it's absolutely enormous. Um, it's this massive floor television and it was a, basically a prototype colour TV that they were working on at the time. Um, and it's it's huge. <laughs> it's, it's like a projector screen size. Um, so yeah, they were. it was a, a prototype colour television. Um, which was fantastic because we did a we were running a, a a store tour an echo store tour at one point and we tend to get um, ex-employees or parents or you know um, children of ex-employees and things like that and we were showing everyone around the store and one man said oh, I actually worked on that prototype television <laughs> which was just incredible because you think oh my god you'll know so much more than we do <laughs> you've got to share all your knowledge um, so it's always really, it's really wonderful to talk to people about Echo because I think in this town everyone has got, um, everyone's got a connection to Echo in some way, whether it's, oh, my grandma used to work there or someone was in the Echo Social Club or um, in one of their productions because they had such an amazing kind of social scene at Echo in the, in the, in the company. 
if you worked for them you had kind of a great social life as well so it's I think it's always really interesting to know this I think the connections everyone seems to link back to Echo here which is always really exciting. It was clear talking to Kira how important Echo was and is to the people of Southend. The Pritterwell Prince was also a significant collection in the museum due to its archaeological and historical importance. Kira did a great job in talking me through the permanent museum exhibition of it. Obviously we have to work with the space that we have in the museum so there's only ever so much space and obviously working with um, the money that we've got, the budgets that we work with so we do the best that we can do um, with what we've got essentially but I did I really wanted to create something that was very kind of intimate and a kind of a personal experience with this person because fundamentally it is a burial and so it was someone's it's someone's burial so I think it's really important to I think get that message across so the space is really low lit it's very immersive um, there's the, there's a large central showcase that displays kind of I suppose a cross-section of some of the grave goods that were found, um, a combination of ironwork and and then some beautiful glasswork and gold and lovely coins and mm. um, all, you know, some really, really beautiful pieces. And essentially um, it's laid out in the way that we could do with the space as though it would have been found in the chamber itself. So the body is laid out in the same way and, and so the crosses are placed at the, the head end and the and the garter buckles for the feet at the feet end. Um, and yeah, we wanted to kind of, I think, encourage people to learn more and to, and I suppose, um, do some more of their own research with the research that Mola's done in the kind of the books that we've got available in the shop. But I think to give people an idea of just how significant this find was. So we wanted something that was really kind of, it looks quite rich and quite indulgent. And it's that feeling of, it's, I suppose, getting the message across, this is something really important. And we're so incredibly lucky to have this in the area. But also I think for people who are not from the area to learn more about how um, incredibly rich this town is in terms of its historical significance. Um, which for me is really important because I think more people need to know about how wonderful South End is. Yeah, I agree. And I think when I've when I've been there, because I've visited it about three times, I think the things that really struck me as amazing were, were the gold belt buckle, yeah, um, which is just incredible, but also the glassware that you just mentioned. Those it almost it looks like that could have been made today absolutely it's, it's fresh it's as fresh glass it's is it blue or green yeah there's remember. blue and green so yeah we've got and two they just look incredible they look so well crafted and as fresh as you bought them off the shelf in ikea yeah again. absolutely um, yeah or maybe ikea i'm doing the vases down significantly <laughs> there but you know what i mean yeah I mean, that, and and the, the gold crosses as well the foil crosses are just it's almost, a, I felt quite, it was quite a transcendental experience going in there. As you say, it's very low lit and you feel you're going into a subterranean, another world, almost. Kira introduced me to the textile collection, which lay all around us where we sat. Wedding dresses from the 1950s, hats in boxes. She kept referring to an incredibly old shoe. For some reason it caught my interest and I kept going back to it, as you can hear in these excerpts. 
the earliest pieces from about 1645, which is a slap sole shoe, um, which is a very, very rare shoe. There's only about six left in the world. Um, and our lovely shoe has just come off a tour actually from the um, Pleasure and Pain Shoes Exhibition at the V&A. So it's been around the world, which was very exciting. It's a very well-traveled shoe. Um, and it kind of goes up to present day, so when we can contemporary collect or if we get any donations. Is how does a shoe from 1645 survive? Well, why is, why is, how's that lasted? <laughs> how's it even possible? I know it seems almost, it seems impossible, doesn't it? Um, so that shoe was found in a, um, essentially on, in a trunk in someone's um, attic, and they uncovered this shoe and there was only one shoe so again the other one we don't know what happened to the other one and then it was donated to the museum basically um but I mean it, it depends really I think anything that's I I always kind of associate anything that's older seems to be of higher quality um which is sad really now thinking about in the way things that are made now but obviously there's a huge conversation around fast fashion at the moment and how kind of bad it is for the environment but it's so true in terms of how long things last so so older, older clothes, older fashion and textiles, they were, they were made to last because you wouldn't be purchasing um, clothing as frequently as we would now. So things were kind of, essentially, they were made to last. So whether it's really kind of strong, sturdy material, materials that were used, um, that's just meant that they've stood the test of time, really. So yeah, it's a South End, it's, it's a, arguably a, a South End shoe. Yes, yeah. And, and a lady's shoe. Yes, yeah. And would it have been quite an expensive shoe? Yes, definitely. So uh, yeah. Well, so this shoe is really, it's really rare as well because the time period that it was fashionable from, it was about 1640 to 1647, I think. There was a very short period of time that these shoes, they're called slap sole shoes, would have been worn. So essentially it's a, it's a heeled shoe, um, a very, a, a 16... 1600s looking shoe as you might imagine it and then it's got a second sole which is partially attached that's so attached at the front of the shoe and it's not attached at the heel so when you walk it basically makes a slap slap noise oh. so it's slap 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 when you'd walk through so essentially um it was it was used as a for a number of reasons i would argue it was to ensure that you could hear women coming, so you could hear if they were trying to leave, so they were very much kept to the domestic sphere, but also it became a really fashionable, um, it basically was a fashion item, um, but originally it would have been worn by men because the heel of the of the man's shoe would basically sink between the mud of the cobbles, so if he was walking outside, the heel might sink into, into muddy, horrible ground when you were walking so the second shoe or the second sole sorry was used to protect the heel and then that basically was translated into it became um a kind of a fashion trend and then that's when it moved over to kind of ladies wear and then it became a kind of uh, just a fashionable item of shoe um to wear at the time so how yeah, interesting know, 17th yeah. century shoes so, yeah <laughs> very yeah, very small time frame that it was fashionable it was only a few years that people yeah. would wear these shoes so we're very lucky to have it we talked some more about the collection and stores and the heat which had arrived so quickly with june 20 minutes later as we were heading to the door kira as if an afterthought told me that the shoe was on the shelf by the door and would i like to see it I must admit I felt a jolt of excitement. Yes, of course. 
Once opened, I gazed upon a highly decorated ladies' high heel shoe, trimmed with lace and beige pink ribbons. The lamb's leather looked soft and the silk toe covering had decayed to vertical threads, looking like fur more than silk. A patina of dirt and decay covered it, but in its time it would have looked incredibly decadent. Sure enough, a narrow sole connected the heel and the toe sections of the shoe, like a modern ice skating boot without the blade. I felt privileged to have seen it, Southend's oldest shoe. How do you move it? I asked Kira. You just have to be bold, not nervous, have a clear path to where you're moving it to. She boxed it back up into darkness, like the attic trunk it had hidden in for so many years. Well, that's the end to another month's edition. Thank you so much for listening. Next month will be the last episode of the Clifftown podcast. For the time being, at least. I'll be walking off the mainland into the sea and the almost alien landscape found there. Come join me. See you next time in Clifftown. song is too